Let's pray. Spirit of God, Holy One, move in our lives, move with power, do the work that you have determined to do in each one of us and in this church. We want this for your glory, Lord, that not unto us, not unto us would be any glory, but all unto you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Spirit of God, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus, crucified for sinners and raised to give us life. And that will be more than enough for us. Thank you. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the prospect of wrestling with God is not pleasant. Consider the man who knows God is calling him out about his harsh and hurtful ways at home, and he just does not want to face him. Or the woman who knows her simmering resentment has gone about as far as God will allow. Or the man who has moved heaven and earth to control his life, and now God has thrown a monkey wrench into the works of his best laid plans. Consider also the woman who knows God has a different agenda for her future from the one she's been cultivating and pursuing. Now it's high noon. And then there's the student who knows the secret sin must stop and God has now summoned him to the office. I repeat, the prospect of wrestling with God is not pleasant. We've thought about this the last two sermons in our study of Jacob's life. Sooner or later, God comes after us, just like he did with Jacob on that dark night. And if Jacob's wrestling with God is any model for our own, and surely it is, for a while we wrestle just to get free of God, and then we wrestle just to hang on to God. God wounds us, if he must, till we can fight him no more. And finally, after what seems like a lifetime of struggling with God and struggling with people, we receive a blessing we could never imagine. Jacob named uh, the site of his wrestling with God Peniel, face of God. Jacob saw the shining face of God's blessing. And as we saw in the last sermon, the sun rose above him. It was shining like the face of God as he passed that place, Peniel, face of God. And he was limping because of his hip. It is not pleasant to wrestle with God. I've never enjoyed it myself very much. To be forced by the Almighty to face uh, who we are and what we're like. To be wounded till we surrender to him. But I think because of our sin and our self-will, that's really about the only way he can bless us. We have to stop doing life our own way and learn to trust him. But then what? What happens the next day? What lies ahead once we've wrestled with God and God has struggled with us till we've both lost or we've both won, however you want to describe that? The next chapter in Jacob's story is Genesis 33, and it illustrates what it's like to walk with a limp in the sunshine of God's gracious, blessed smile. We've been looking at this section of Jacob's life as a three-act drama, and today we arrive at Act 3, 
Act 1, it looked fine at the beginning, but then things took a bad turn. Act 2, the unexpected twist when things went from bad to worse, and it was like a perfect storm threatening your life. Act 3, today, is what happens after the storm. We have no um, slides up here. Have those been missing ever since I started? Oh, gosh, okay. Thank you. We uh, will try again. I'm sorry about that. Let's take a pause here. Technology. Can't live with it, can't live without it, but I'm going to try. Ooh, are we live yet? Okay, we're getting there. Okay. So, where were we? Act three, I believe, and there it goes. We're having some trouble, so I'm going to keep rolling. Uh, Act three of today is what happens after that storm uh, when the two estranged brothers finally meet. So the title of the message today is The Power of Grace for Limping Home. The Power of Grace for Limping Home. How does this work? Just a minute. First of all, God's grace gives us faith to face our fears. You'll find some sermon notes on the back of your bulletin. Let's, let's work with that. Good old hard copy paper, right? How does this work? Well, first of all, God's grace gives us faith to face our fears. Uh, the terrifying prospect that arose... This is what you call fits and starts. Okay. Something might. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) All right, where are we? God's grace gives us faith to face our fears. So the, the terrifying prospect that arose in Act 1 of this drama is now upon Jacob in Act 3. Okay, Um, we read in verse 1 of Genesis 33 that Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Uh, When Jacob had last seen Esau 20 years earlier, Esau was determined to kill him. Uh, The 400 men he was bringing with him was ample proof that Esau knew how to feed a grudge. Knowing this, Jacob puts his little clan in order and sends them forward. And then Jacob does something unthinkable. He goes up against 400 men and the man leading them alone, all alone, with nothing to defend himself but his faith in the smiling, gracious God who had wrestled with him to bless him the night before. That's all he's got. And that's what God can do for us. God's grace gives us faith to face Our fears, our greatest fears. And I don't mean by that that God's grace gives us the power of positive thinking, you know, a kind of grinning optimism or a good feeling that things are just going to work out. I mean God's grace gives us a trust in the God who delivers his people. 
Jacob had prayed to God in Genesis chapter 32, verse 11, save me from the hand of my brother. You remember his prayer? And then after his night of wrestling with God, what had he said in Genesis 32, verse 30? I saw God face to face, and my life was saved. So when he goes out to face Esau, he's confident that God has already saved him. He's already been delivered. And we sing that same idea all the time. For example, in the familiar hymn that that I love, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever my lot. So we all face terrors and anxieties. We, We all have learned that trusting God is not easy, especially in the dark. Putting our fears into God's hands is something like trying to tuck an octopus into bed. You know, just when you get one arm in, another one pops out. So rather than focusing on our fears in our prayers, we ought to focus on our God in our prayers. So in order to think well about God, we need our Bibles. We need the Psalms, the stories of Jesus, the great truths of our faith uh, that are in the epistles, the Isaiah's words of comfort, comfort ye my people. We need to work the Bible's truth into our fears the way we would work ointment into a festering wound. Once our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then we can tell him every single angle on our fear or problem that we can identify, at least. Philippians 4, verse 5 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And Paul then promises that the result will be that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So go ahead. Try that. Test that. See it for yourself. I think one of the wonders of God's grace is how God can give us peace in the face of terrifying things. Um, Ours is not a faith that believes nothing bad will ever happen, but rather that nothing can truly harm or finally harm us if God has saved us. You know, I visited lots of friends and family and church members uh, in hospitals over the years, some who've been really sick, some who were dying. And sometimes at the bedside in situations like that, I've read the story from the Gospel of Mark chapter 4 about the storm at sea, the one where the disciples are terrified they would die and Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat. So when in their panic they woke Jesus, what did he do? He rebuked the sea till it lay still and then he rebuked the disciples for their little faith. Not because they did not still the sea themselves, no, but because they did not believe that they were safe as long as Jesus was in their boat. I've told critically ill people and their families that it's a miracle indeed when God delivers someone from a deadly illness or condition, but that it may be, it may be an even greater miracle when he gives his people peace no matter what the outcome, whatever my lot. And that's exactly what's happening with Jacob. As alone, he walks by the grace of God to meet Esau and his 400 men. 
So here's another thing that grace does. We're just going to look at the power of grace for limping home. God's grace runs to embrace our weakness. Isn't that a great picture? God's grace runs to embrace our weakness. See, what happens next in this story is a stunner. It's the surprise ending that if you didn't already know it, let's be honest, if you didn't already know it, it would leave you teary and sniffling and all choked up. When Jacob spots Esau and his 400 men from like hundreds of yards away, he divides his children among Leah, Rachel, and their two maidservants. Then he goes ahead of them, making his way toward his brother Esau, bowing every so often, seven times in all. And all the while, picture those 400 men. They're watching him. They don't know what's going to happen. Their hands are kind of working the handles of their swords. They're ready. Behind Jacob is his family. Can you picture it? Mothers hush their kids. They lay their hands on the boys' shoulders. The air is still and heavy and hot. And then the ending no one expected. Verse 4. But Esau ran. (laughs) Do you see that? Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. That, my friends, is grace. And the next verses are just, they're dripping with even more grace. Verse 5. Then Esau looked up. And saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel and they too bowed down. Verse 8. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. You have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Here's the lesson. Once we surrender to God and receive his blessing, his grace runs to embrace us as Esau ran to embrace Jacob. Grace grace fills our lives with surprises. All undeserved, all unearned, all unexpected gifts of just eye-popping proportions. Remember that Jacob and Esau had a nitroglycerin relationship. The nitro of Esau's hatred and the glycerin of Jacob's fear. Now you put those two things together, hatred and fear, and it was always an explosion waiting to happen. But God miraculously neutralized both. God's grace, I don't even know how to say it, God's grace is a wonder drug. God's grace is the wonder drug for sick and sad and broken and explosive relationships. Now, we know a bit about how God's grace changed Jacob, but we don't know how it was that God changed Esau. I suppose Esau might have brought 400 men with him for a little security, but I doubt it. I think he was still fuming mad at Jacob when he left home. 
So he brought his army. But somehow, out in the desert, in answer to Jacob's prayer for God to save him, in an act of grace toward Esau, as much as Jacob, God transformed Esau's heart. God transformed Esau's heart, leaving those 400 men standing there looking at each other saying, well, what are we here for? Why did we come along? As the grace of God embraces us in our weakness, what does it do? It does all kinds of things. Grace is so powerful to do so many things that we cannot do ourselves. I'm just going to run through some of them. It shows God's power so vividly when his grace changes hearts, as he did with Esau. Creating the world in six days out of nothing, multiplying the loaves and the fish, walking on water, stilling storms. That's all kid stuff compared to what God does to change hard hearts, like he did here in our text. God will do that in our lives too. In us, and even in those we fear or hate. Our faith in Jesus brings us, you see, the gift of the Holy Spirit to come and live within us. And the Spirit goes to work because he's a holy spirit. And he goes to work to change who we are and how we respond to life. Grace also humbles us without crushing us. Humbles us without crushing us. Isn't God good? There's a strange thing hidden between the lines of this story. God had told these boys' mother that Esau would serve Jacob. And when Isaac blessed Jacob, he said the same thing, that older brother Esau would bow to younger brother Jacob one day. Yet here is Jacob. As he meets Esau after 20 years, he's bowing down seven times as he approaches Esau. The, ma- the way a man would approach a king. Now, some may see a fawning fear in that, but I see grace. I see a man humbled by God, a man willing to bow low again and again so that he might reach that point of being reconciled. A man who has become a servant, but not a doormat, a man beautifully humbled enough to bow to his own brother. That's grace. Grace also heals inflamed, sore memories, and we all have them. We live in a fallen world, and we're fallen people. Both these brothers had some very bad memories, vengeful or fearful, that they were carrying into this encounter like burning arrows they were ready to use. Memories can be like that. They can be dangerous. They can be toxic. But somehow, these two brothers who had fought, you remember, even in the womb, (laughs) they're suddenly hugging and weeping and making introductions all around and giving gifts. That's what God does. (laughs) That's what God does when we give his grace room, space to work. God's grace at work in us, also releases God's blessing. Releases God's blessing. The translation of verse 11 in the New International Version is a bit unfortunate. It says, please accept the present that was brought to you. The Hebrew word there is blessing. 
In other words, please accept the blessing that is brought to you. There's that word again. So central to Jacob's life. Blessing. It's what he connived to steal from Esau in the first place. But now, now having been a recipient of God's grace and Esau's, Jacob turns God's blessing back on his brother in the form of a blessing, an extravagant gift. So we as Christians, followers of Jesus, we're recipients and agents of God's grace. I mean, what we have received from Jesus, what is it? Well, forgiveness, blessing, hope, love, righteousness, peace, joy, and so much more. We turn all of that back on others. And, and, and we give them not something of ours exactly, but something of God's. Something of God's invested in us and entrusted to us to use. In verse 10, Jacob says to his brother, For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Face of God, of course. That's the name he gave that place where he had spent the night wrestling with God. He had just seen God's face. That was the heart of his blessing. God smiled upon him with favor. So what does Jacob mean when he says this to Esau? He doesn't mean that Esau looked like God. He's saying that when he looked at Esau, that face tear-stained and grinning, restored and forgiving, he saw the face of God's grace. He saw God's grace at work right before his eyes in the face of his brother. In other words, grace is the face of God. Grace is the face of God. So what Jacob meant was something like, to look at you is like looking God's grace in the face all over again. I see the smile of his favor again in the favor you're showing me. Jesus told a story about a prodigal son. A son not too different from Jacob, not too different from me or you, who also finally trudged home in fear after a long, hard time away. And that son saw his father running toward him, just as Esau had run toward Jacob. That prodigal was stunned to be embraced, just as Jacob was. In fact, Jesus used words almost identical to the words used in the account of Jacob and Esau. In the grace of the father who ran to welcome and honor his prodigal son, we see the face of God. And we see the face of God in Jesus. No one's seen the father, but the son reveals the father to us. He's the face of God. We see the face of God in Jesus when we bow before him. We humble ourselves before him. And we find him embracing us, loving us, forgiving us, restoring us, reconciling us to the God our sin offended. This picture, this picture, Jacob and Esau together, that's what God's grace looks like. Here's the final thing grace does. And grace will lead us limping home. Grace will lead us home. The next few verses, verses 12 through 19, describe how Esau returned to his home in the south while Jacob finally makes his way to the land that God had promised to give him 20 years earlier. Verse 12. 
Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. Is that a beautiful picture? But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. Verse 16, so that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. It means shelters. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And this underscores really the eternal benefit of God's grace. In the language of John Newton, hymn that we sing often in many different forms, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Say it with me. Say the rest with me. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace always leads us home. Limping home. And it's grace that will finally get us there. Esau invited Jacob to come down to his place, but Jacob demurred and set out for Shechem, where he settled. God had told him to return to that land, and so he did. The promised land was a big part of God's blessing to Jacob. Author John Cheever wrote one time that 50% of the people in the world are homesick all the time. You don't really long for another country. You long for something in yourself that you don't have or haven't been able to find. He's talking about home. Grace will lead us home. Where is home? Where is home for us today, right now today, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ? Where is our home? When we come from every tribe and language and people and nation, where is our home? Our home in this life, our home in this world, is the church of Jesus Christ. God has graciously provided that for us. In any good church, large or small, whatever language is spoken, whatever songs are sung, you somehow feel you are home. Haven't you felt that? in various churches you've visited. Now, I know full well that churches do not always feel that way. And some are sometimes terrible homes to be part of. But that does not change the reality that the church is God's home for us here in this world. When people are born again through faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us almost a a homing instinct it's, it's, it's in our spiritual DNA, if you will, that we belong with other believers in a local church. And so Christians, and this happens a lot in our day, in our land, Christians who live without a church in this life 
become spiritual vagabonds, a bit adrift. Church is the temporary place in this world that points us to our permanent place in another, our homeland. Our homeland that is in Jesus, in heaven. He's preparing that place, that homeland. That's our land. That's our land. That's where we're going. And grace will lead us limping home. And so here's what I've discovered, and it's, you see it in our text. We need some landmarks along the way to remember God's grace. We need landmarks to remember God's grace. When Jacob finally got home to that land, 20 years had passed, those long, hard years, struggles with God, struggles with people, you know what? He was not the same man he was 20 years earlier. He was really no longer Jacob. He was now Israel. God had given him a new identity. He'd been saved born again, if you will. He was newly minted, recreated by the grace of God. And so there, in that place, he built an altar to mark the place and the grace. And he gave that pile of rocks a name. We usually don't give piles of rocks a name, but maybe we should. We've talked about this. He gave that pile of rocks a name. He he called it El Elohe Israel. God is the God of Israel. In other words, he's saying, God is my God. God is the God of me, Israel. Right here is where I learned that, he was saying. Here is where I saw God at his grace-filled, grace-working best. And I resolved never to forget this place. You have places like that in your life. If you've come to know Christ and trust him and follow him, And the first, of course, is that place where you met Jesus. It might have been praying with your mother or father or some other family member. Some moment at a youth group meeting or retreat. A a lonely walk. A visit with a caring friend who stopped by. And in that hour, that hour when you first believed, that deserves a marker. A monument of salvation. And there have been other moments and places, to be sure. And when they happen, these moments in our lives that are electric, that we know God is there and he's at work, they're wonderful, they're miraculous. And and we're sure we will never forget. But you know what? We can, and we do. And so Jacob wanted to be sure that not only would he remember this place, but that his heirs would too. They would know of this God and his grace. So the prospect of wrestling with God, it's not pleasant, but that's not the end of the story. That's part of the process. How sweet it is to walk out into the sunshine of God's smile, even if we're limping now. How wonderful it is when God's grace begins to replace our fears with faith, when his grace runs to embrace you, to surprise you, to powerfully restore you, when his grace is leading you home. Do you know that his grace is leading you home? That you are always homeward bound, even on the side roads you take. God brings you back to the road, and you're always homeward bound, limp and all, grace will lead you home.
Amen? Amen. It's our privilege today 